Welcome to Food Navigator USA's Soup to Nuts podcast with Elizabeth Crawford, where I dish with trendsetters, tastemakers, and other experts in the food and beverage industry about everything from emerging trends to regulatory pressures to marketing strategies. Today, we're going back to the future where Carl Jorgensen, who's the Director of Global Consumer Strategy at the brand building firm Damon Worldwide. On this podcast, we talk a lot about the future of food, where trends are headed, new innovations, and cutting-edge research. But today we're going to do something a little bit different. We're going to look backwards to see how time-tested traditional cooking techniques and ingredients are influencing today's food and beverages. For example, stroll down almost any grocery aisle will turn up products that are touting family recipes from generations past, call-outs to heirloom varieties of produce, reference to ancient grains, or graphics and images that really recall bygone cultures. Carl, can you help set the stage for us and define what this trend is and sort of walk us through what you're seeing on store shelves and in product pipelines as they relate to this notion of everything old is new again? Thanks, Elizabeth. Um, Think of this trend as rediscovering ancient wisdom. Uh, Every traditional culture around the world has maintained foods and wellness practices whose benefits are being rediscovered today. Uh, One of the first ancient products to go mainstream was yogurt in the 70s. Now it's an established dairy category. The popularity of kombucha, originally a traditional fermented tea from the Caucasus and Central Asia regions, is another example of old becoming new again. A tradition closer to home is the revival of Switchel, a vinegar-based drink that was used by 19th and early 20th century American farmers as a refresher out in the hot fields. Looking ahead, a fascinating product that we may be seeing more of is fermented green tea leaves, a traditional specialty from Burma, which is chopped and used as a savory, pungent condiment. Wow, I'm actually really excited to try that. I have in my fridge right now Switchel, um, and I hadn't heard of this condiment, so that'll be a fun one to watch. I had an opportunity to taste it at uh, Expo, and I've actually stayed in touch with this uh, company that's really the first to bring it to market. Um, It's fascinating. Why do you think consumers are so drawn to this trend of ancient wisdom, and what do you think the emergence of this trend means for consumer views on modern food production and offerings? Well, There's a sense that what is traditional is tried and true, and it can be trusted. Um, This is the flip side of uh, what we're seeing in terms of consumer distrust of big science, big food, big government. Uh, Very ancient traditions like Chinese medicine and yoga have the halo of the wisdom of the ancients. And so, yeah, you mentioned yoga, um, and we're obviously talking about foods and beverages. Can you talk a little bit about how far this trend reaches? I mean, what are some other examples of the, in the food and beverage space, and where are they pulling from? Well, now it's, it's everywhere. Uh, preserving foods through fermentation and pickling, uh, using herbs to treat everyday ailments, and eating cultured dairy products and drinking vinegars for digestive health are really now becoming mainstream. One of the things that we haven't um, talked about yet is this subset of the trend, which is ancient grains, and we sort of see it everywhere. Um, what are some examples of ancient grains that you see, and what do they offer that maybe more modern grains don't? Well, some of the ancient grains that we've become familiar with in recent years are spelt, 
faro, kamut, quinoa, and amaranth, uh, kind of exotic names, but they're traditional grains from ancient agrarian cultures. And these grains have not been transformed by plant breeding, like modern wheat and corn, which have been bred to make whiter, softer breads and produce higher starch and higher carbohydrate content. Many ancient grains in their whole form offer more fiber, protein, and minerals. And they tend to have richer, more interesting flavors. Many ancient grains fit nicely into gluten-free diets. Which is definitely a big trend. I think gluten-free may have peaked. That's my prediction. And that we're going to see a plateau for a while and then a gradual tapering. So what does that mean? Will that impact um, what we're seeing with ancient Or are they really a separate trend? Yeah, it is a separate trend. I mean, it, it's a little bit related to, you know, clean label and free from and all that, but it's its own thing. And I think gluten-free is, was driven by a larger trend. It's really not that gluten itself is what people objected to. is that they objected to um, kind of uh, modern processed uh, grains. Which brings us right back to what we were mentioning earlier about some of the breeding techniques used to make a softer bread or a softer product. Um, with that in mind, what are some of the challenges and opportunities that manufacturers can expect in working with ancient grains that haven't been bred for these qualities? Well, number one challenge is supply. Uh, we don't yet have industrial-scale production of many of these grains, although quinoa production is growing rapidly as farmers outside of its South American homeland are learning to cultivate it. Um, establishing relationships with specialty grain growers and offering longer-term contracts really are the keys to securing supply. The opportunities in terms of creative uses of ancient grains are limitless, literally. Uh, we're seeing ancient grains in cereals, pasta, bread, snacks, even smoothie mixes. And you mentioned, um, in addition to their versatile uses, you mentioned several at the beginning of our um, talk about ancient grains. But are there specific ones that really stand out to you as rising stars in the next one to two years? Well, I would say one of the hottest ancient grains right now is teff. Uh, it's a grain that's originally from the Horn of Africa region, you know, Ethiopia, Eritrea, Somalia. And when you, when you look at it, the grains are very, very tiny little balls like millet. Uh, but when cooked in traditional and in innovative ways, have a very rich, nutty flavor. So you're going to be hearing a lot more about TEF. I'm definitely looking to see how um, companies are using it. Another sub-trend of this idea that everything old is new again is uh, the emerging use of traditional Chinese and Ayurvedic herbs as ingredients in foods and beverages. You know, I see this in a lot of beverages, such as Rebel Super Herbs, which are bottled drinks that use maca, rishi, and ashwagandha. There's another mushroom-based tea and coffee and cocoa company, uh, Four Sigma Foods. I'm curious if you can talk a little bit about why these ingredients that were once powdered and encapsulated and sold as supplements are now popping up in foods and drinks. Well, you know, it's, it's, it's the food as medicine idea. Uh, traditional herbs, spices, and other plants have great flavors and culinary traditions behind them. And let's face it, a capsule doesn't provide the same experience, does it? 
Uh, a fascinating product uh, featured at Expo West was um, Sherpa Power Tea. Uh, it has Ayurvedic herbs, ashwagandha, and amla, and they're grown in Nepal by small farmers as part of a rural revitalization program. And these herbs have been traditionally used by the Sherpa people to support strength, endurance, and disease resistance. I think it's a lot more fun to get those herbs in a tea than it is from a, a capsule. You mentioned a couple of the herbs that they're using in the Sherpa, and I also mentioned maca and rishi and ashwagandha. Can you talk a little bit about what specific herbs or ingredients you see really gaining traction in the U.S.? Well, it's hard to avoid hearing about uh, turmeric these days, isn't it? Uh, the benefits of this spice are beginning to be understood by consumers, uh, not just from a traditional Ayurvedic or Indian culinary perspective, but also from scientific research. Uh, the anti-inflammatory and cognitive benefits really have great potential. Uh, another big trend is matcha or matcha. M-A-T-C-H-A, which is a traditional green tea powder from Japan. Uh, it's prized for, you know, among other benefits, its high theanine content that helps regulate emotional states. And it's finding its way as an ingredient into smoothie mixes, snacks, and even baking mixes. It certainly has a beautiful color. It is. Glorious green. <laughs> Another sort of interesting component of this trend that we've talked about before is the resurgence in biodynamic agriculture. Can you sort of explain what that is, how it compares to organic and conventional agriculture, and why it's gaining traction? Well, think of biodynamic agriculture as beyond organic. Uh, it's a system of chemical-free agriculture that is actually older than organic. Uh, it started in Europe in the 1920s. Uh, a lot of people don't know that a farm must first have obtained organic certification before applying for biodynamic certification. It's a, a truly sustainable agricultural system. Uh, it seeks to have all inputs necessary for agricultural production, such as fertilizer and seed, produced on the farm itself. A mature biodynamic farm is fully self-sufficient and does not need to purchase off-farm inputs. And that's really the ultimate sustainability and food security. And in my opinion, uh, points the way forward to achieving food security in the face of climate change and global political and economic instability. I think it's interesting you mentioned um, sustainability and um, climate change there. To loop back to what we were saying about ancient grains, I've heard a lot of those are really drought-resistant and hardy, so I sort of see how these different subtrends are coming together here. Yes, one of the interesting uh, things when you think about climate change is that um, there's an increasing awareness of the importance of healthy soils. Um, uh, fully awake uh, soil ecosystems uh, manage uh, rainwater hold rainwater and use it uh, up to eight times more efficiently than basically dirt, which is dead soil. Uh, you know, during drought conditions, you'll see sometimes an organic or biodynamic farm looking all wonderful and green, or in the neighboring conventional farms are all dried up. It's, it's pretty dramatic. Yeah, so sort of 
building off of those challenges, I'm wondering if we can take a step back and look at the overall trend here. What challenges or hurdles do manufacturers need to overcome if they really want to seize this trend, and how can they address them? One obvious challenge is the availability of adequate supplies of authentic, high-quality ingredients. Now, it takes time for agriculture to catch up to these new, old food trends. Um, Secondly, food technologists have a learning curve as they work with ingredients that are new to them. Um, And there's this ever-present problem of getting carried away by claims. I mean, you may be a true believer that your innovative food product will save the world, but uh, make sure you take the time to fully vet your claims before you go to market. Yeah, that's definitely a a good cautionary tale, especially once you start bringing in health benefits and claims. I mean, have you seen much litigation around this or enforcement from the... Well, yeah, even, uh, 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 you know, uh, the idea of, of there's been litigation around healthy, you know, saying that your product is healthy. Well, you know, that that's a very general subjective term, and, um, you know, uh, marketers have gotten in trouble for that one. So, um, yeah, I think you need to be extremely careful. And, in fact, uh, I strongly recommend working with attorneys who specialize in uh, vetting claims uh, before you print your label. That's really good advice. Um, And thinking back sort of to what you said earlier about gluten-free peaking, I'm wondering if you can look, um, look forward a little bit for us what do you see in terms of the sustainability of this trend? How long? Well, I, you know, there's been enough uh, blowback uh, on gluten-free that you're starting to see it being debunked, uh, you know, in the blogosphere uh, by kind of trusted uh, food experts and and that sort of thing, and that people are beginning to realize that, you know, their problems may be due to more than you know, the fact that they're eating gluten. They could be due to stress or hormones in their food or, you know, any number of other factors and that to kind of blame it all on gluten, uh, it's a little short-sighted and that um, uh, many people are not experiencing the kind of long-term benefits of avoiding gluten that they, you know, were hoping to get. So, I really do believe that um, we're, we're seeing peak gluten-free at this time. So bringing that to this trend that we're talking about today where everything old is new again, how do you see this trend developing in the future? I mean, is this a fad? Is it going to have the same problems as, as gluten-free? Or, or what do you think will happen? Well, I actually don't think so. I think the whole idea of, of uh, well, I love calling it ancient wisdom, uh, is something that's actually a, a um, more of a what you would call a mega trend, in the sense that um, people really do trust things that are tried and true, you know, over time, uh, rather than uh, new ideas or fads. Um, you know, by its very nature, this idea of ancient wisdom is kind of the opposite of a fad. It, it's really um, um, putting your trust in what's tried and true. Carl, thank you so much for joining me on this trip back to the future today and sort of sharing your insights about this trend of ancient wisdom. 
I also want to thank everyone for listening today, and I hope you join us again next week for another episode of Food Navigator USA's Soup to Nuts podcast. Until then, I'm Elizabeth Crawford, signing off. 